time where it was like the whole base got locked down. So and I then when the I went back on my own, I was like, I was like, dude, what is this? Mm -hmm. I think it's the U.S. government stopping you, not the, not the Japanese. Uh, or that thousand-year-old demon. Well, that's that's what lengths the Japanese government would go just to not win right now. The one person they're just like, not fuck that guy. Like he needs to just go back. He needs to go back to the base in Okinawa. That's all we need to do. Is that the one about the beginners like Sharia law? This one. That's actually the correct. And with that, we're going to start our podcast. I've been recording for the past thirty-five seconds. So. Samaj <laughs> is devious like that. You guys are they get to listen to my conspiracies. That's right. Yeah, the thousand-year-old demon that's the way to get found. This man did not trust a thousand-year-old demon. A conspiracy to stop uh, our buddy here from going to Mount Fuji. <laughs> yeah. Much to talk about today. <laughs> Anywho, <laughs> what are you going to say? Right? Well, I'm just going to break down what exactly we're going to be talking about. If that's all right with you so much. Oh, all right, sip your wine and drinking. I'll take us away. So in, right now, originally, we're going to talk about Islam. We're just going to talk about the various schools and branches and kind of go on from there. And then the second hour of this podcast, we're going to talk about littoral um, sea control and naval warfare in that part of the ocean. Um, but just to kind of kick it off, we have two new guests and... We'll go age over beauty, and we'll go with Zach first. Oh, Zach, so Zach, Zach, introduce yourselses. So you know, you know, give your Zach, give your opinion. Okay, Thank don't you, worry Zach. about that. <laughs> At least somebody loves me out of this. <laughs> so, uh, my name is Zach Pittman. Uh, I, I've done so much. So, I'm an IWP student for statecraft and international affairs uh, for my master's. Uh, this is technically my second. Uh, my first one is in intelligence management, uh, master's, bachelor's, intelligence. Uh, worked with the counterterrorism group for, geez, two years. Specialized in Africa, the Middle East, and I kind of just continued that with a new project. It's a nonprofit. Uh, started. It's called Global Conflict and Crisis Strategic Solutions, uh, GC2S2, short. Uh, and that is my new project right now. We're working on Middle East and Africa nonprofit grants, helping the Africans make decisions for themselves in the future. Wow, I don't really know how to follow that one up. <laughs> <laughs> Just whatever floats your boat. So my name is Beverly Dempsey. I'm a rising junior at GMU. A rising senior, apologies. Um, I am studying international affairs with a minor in naval science and a concentration in security policy. Uh, I spent most of my uh, life studying abroad and living abroad, um, specifically in the Middle East and um, Africa, um, as well as doing a study abroad in Indonesia where I was... Um, Living with an Islamic host family, uh, went to Islamic private school, so Islam is something that um, I had the opportunity to learn a lot about, so I'm excited to speak towards that. Um, in terms of relation to IWP, I was uh, an intern there um, for the fall semester. I was Dr. Anderson's, one of Dr. Anderson's uh, presidential interns, um, and had the opportunity uh, to work with Wainwright um, for... God bless uh, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a rough game. <laughs> I feel underqualified to be here, but hopefully I can bring some good perspectives you are full um, and humble yeah. these men. Yeah, well, it's, it's very good to have you both here. But, you know, just to kick it off, like I said, I would like to talk about just the different schools and Before branches. we continue, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. hello, Jack-Jack. Hello. <laughs> yes, John Mueller. Jack-Jack Mueller. Jack-Jack, John, JJ, you name it. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm back. It's North very African glad. Animal Rider. Very glad to be back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
Catch me out in the Sahel. Or, uh, <laughs> the one time that he famous is like Mansa Musa just coming out of here, just like no. go trade. Little known no. fact, we were in the same place just a week apart. Yeah, we like I was in Jordan other. the week after he left. Could have seen him in Petra or Wadi Rum. Yeah, dude. He just doesn't know. But but I want to I want to kick it off. I want to ask John if you can just give us a Wikipedia summary of the different branches of Islam. Um, and maybe the different schools of jurisprudence, and what the difference is between the schools and the branches. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes. I'll try my best. I keep it it's, on track. Yes. It's a yeah. lot. No, but, uh, so let's start with just three individual branches you have. So you have your Sunni branch, your Shia branch, and your Khawarish branch, which is now just essentially Ibadis, which are isolated to Oman. Shout out to Oman. Shout out. To the Switzerland, Switzerland of the, of the Middle East. East. <laughs> um, and then in terms of uh, Sunni schools, you have your Hanafi, Anbali, uh, Maliki, and Shafi. Mm -hmm. And then for Shia schools, you have your uh, Ismaili, Jafi, and Zaidi schools. Uh, and essentially, uh, how, how how far in depth do you want me to go about the differences? <laughs> well, I just like uh, how how do um, the schools of jurisprudence just define Muslims as Muslims, and how do like the branches define them? Like, how do do Muslims tend to view um, other Muslims more in the schools of jurisprudence or more in, as different branches, or just simply as Sunni Shia? Um, okay. And the reason why I bring that up is because. <clears throat> We have to take into consideration um, where you may have there's a growing understanding of uh, Muslims in Western civilizations. They were raised in Western cultures and civilizations and things of that nature, or even not even just Western civilization, even in areas in Eastern um, cultures where, yeah, you have there's a difference in understanding of what it means to be Muslim compared to if you are a Muslim born and raised within the Middle East, North Africa, or even within um, the much more concentrated Muslim populations in Asia, uh, where they may, they may know what school they follow, but when it comes to actual identification, um, that varies. So that's why I brought up that, that, that notion, well, do they just see themselves as, so I'm Sunni, or I'm, just, or I'm Shia, or are they much more ingrained in their schools where they are capable of going much more specific and, well, I belong to this school. I belong to this. So, so you would say that generally, just as a broad overview, when a Muslim meets a Muslim, it's generally, well, are you Shia or Sunni? And then they might go, well, what branch are you? And then if it gets down to the real nitty gritty, then they'd look and say, what school of jurisprudence are you? Well, like, well for example, when we looked at, and we're getting to this later, and then I'll give it back to JJ, when we would look at um, a lot of the videos of um, ISIS when they would do their border checks. They would just simply ask you, are you Sunni or Shia? Okay. And then from there, if you were Sunni or Shia, then they will ask you the much the more specific yes. questions. Okay. Okay. So then that's when they can tell, are you Sunni, are you Shia, and then potentially what school of thought that you belong to. So okay. back to you, JJ. Right. So uh, to Samaj's point, uh, I think you, uh, you're absolutely correct with what you said. Uh, and from my personal experience traveling around, even research purposes, uh, to Samaj's point, it's, you know, if I am from Jordan and I meet a Moroccan, you know, we're both predominantly Sunni, but one of us comes from the Hanafi school of jurisprudence, 
in Jordan, and the other one is a Maliki from Morocco. Mm -hmm. So you know that, I mean, you kind of know based on where they're from what school of jurisprudence they are, uh, just because you have certain countries like Morocco and the majority of Africa really is Maliki, and the Levantine area, Jordan, um, Palestine, even parts of Lebanon are predominantly Sunni and from the Hanafi school. So you, you know who is what based on where they're from, if that makes sense. Uh, and then obviously you know your predominant Shia countries as well, your Iraqs, your Syrias, your Irans. So. Do you have anything to add on that, Zach? Just about the different say, schools? So not necessarily about the different schools, but being a little more specific. The other thing, too, is a lot of people will just identify each other as brother and sister, right? So that's where the baseline is, right? Because you're Muslim, you're a brother, or you're a sister. But then the other thing that uh, you'll see a lot is it comes down to just the basic question of what Samaj was saying. Are you Sunni or Shia? You know, like I've never in my life met a Shia Muslim. Uh, but everybody that I know, and actually it went to the masjid or the mosque to, with is Sunni. So, I mean, to me, I guess it's a little bit of a, what is it, group thing. But, you know, it's well, like, it's, it's all it, that's, that's what I've noticed is, like, a lot of people, when you actually ask, it kind of just right. comes down to the Sunni-Shia thing. And, you know, I, I haven't heard anybody talk about the different schools, so that's actually really interesting. So, I'm interested in that. So, Zach, as a Muslim, though, if you say if you met a Shia on the street, whatever, they were wearing green and Whatever, brown instead of white. They're gonna be. I don't know. Yeah, I'm gonna identify. Like I'm done. But like, would you would you identify them as brother and sister? Yeah, I would. Okay, the same thing. The only difference really comes down to the. I mean, it comes down to that fundamental split in Islam, going all the way back to when the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, when he died. Let me pull up this really quick. But so whenever he passed away, his good friend Abu Bakr which is, in a weird way, kind of related to the Prophet Muhammad because later, Prophet Muhammad married Aisha. Aisha is the one who does a lot of narrations mm -hmm. for the uh, Hadith. So, given a little context there of where she's going to come into play, but essentially, going back to your question, is that's, that's the main thing, is when he died, it became more of a successorship. So it's like, who's the rightful heir <laughs> to the Caliph or the Caliphate? And... You know, the Shia were like, you know, Ali is his cousin and his son-in-law. Because, mm -hmm. you know, Abu Talib was his uncle, which raised Prophet Muhammad. So whenever he died, and then they use another piece of evidence, right? Um, the speech at Khadir Qum, uh, which was technically the Prophet's last sermon, if I'm correct. He essentially said, and let me quote this for you guys so I don't butcher this. In his last sermon, here it is. It says, of whomsoever I had been Mawla, Ali, has, uh, Ali here is to be his Mawla. And that's the part that the Shia hold on to still. Now the term Mawla is where it, the Sunnis look at it as, they're like, it doesn't necessarily mean leadership, because Mawla means like leader, friend, protector, guardian, friends with, close to, it has all these meanings, right? So the Sunni look at it as, that didn't necessarily like you know put him into position of leadership. Towards the Shia, are like it did. You know he named him before. You know so I think that's where the big split is. I don't think it would necessarily be like looks or uh, you know anything like you would be able to visually notice. But the traditions between the Sunni and the Shia are a little bit different too. 
Um, I don't know how much else you want to go into that question. No, I mean, we went from the jurisprudence to the branches, which is fine. Yeah. I just want to identify a lot of people, they're like, oh, a Muslim is a Muslim. Yeah. But there are subtle nuances and gradations mm -hmm. that different Muslims can identify about themselves, and they're proud of those differences, mm -hmm. and I just wanted to flesh those out a little mm -hmm. bit. And before we continue with that, it's also important to note that <clears throat> with Islam and the, the greater MENA region is very interesting. Um, and when I mean greater MENA uh, region, the Middle East, North Africa, that includes in some ways Afghanistan, mm -hmm. uh, Pakistan, um, the Islamic minority in India, Indonesia, etc., um, that within these countries, culture plays a major influence in how the Islamic practices are implemented um, and how it's even interpreted. And that's where the jurisprudence comes in, correct? Yeah. Yes, but then also in some cases you have the personality of the, the leader um, of these Islamic nations that may influence um, the interpretations of Islam and how it portrays in society. So I'll give just two quick examples before we go back to Jack Jack, where he can kind of break down the major jurisprudence. Uh, jurisprudence. Yeah. Uh, we can look at um, how in Iraq under Saddam Hussein, essentially, he utilized Islam and his personalist uh, dictatorship to increase his um, totalitarian um, ownership of Iraq. Um, but we also can see the usage uh, or the, even the interpretations of Islam in nations um, such as um, Egypt under, even though it was a year, um, what was this, Morsi, mm -hmm. um, where although he, they were, the Muslim Brotherhood was utilizing, utilizing Utilizing Jesus, I can't talk today. It's the wine. Utilizing Islam um, to kind of unify Egypt, the Egyptian population. But there was also this head and propaganda where they were trying to make Morsi as like the new Pharaoh. Um, so it was interesting of how cultures of these of these countries also intertwine and intermingle with the interpretations of Islamic interpretations. Mm -hmm. um, but now, we're going to Jack-Jack, when you can talk about the main school of jurisprudence. Um, and what how separates them, what right. makes them unique. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely want to hear from you, Miss Ma'am. Uh, um, Dominating the conversation, haven't given me a chance. <laughs> oh, 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 no, 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 uh, essentially, they view the Quran, uh, the Hadiths, and the Ijma, as well as the legal analogy, which is the Istahan, Istasan, mm -hmm. I believe, and in normative customs, or earth, as uh, the source of Sharia, so the source of law for them to abide by. They believe in the use of personal opinion, uh, or as they call it in Arabic, Rai, to derive Khias. Uh, which basically means their Islamic law on matters in which the Quran or the Hadiths are silent. Mm -hmm. So with regards to situations in which are not 
explicitly described in either the Quran or the Hadith. So, so there's a, a higher higher degree of juristic flexibility. Yes, it's okay. it's more yeah. so. It's yeah, it's very moderate. Interesting. Uh, in the fact that you're allowed your own interpretations more so in deriving law from these scriptures. Okay, and where did you say that uh, the Hanafi school dominates again? The Hanafi school is, it's it's a third of the entire Muslim population. Sure, I'm just, population. I'm just saying like country generally. Like so Hanafis, you're gonna find, that is mostly your Levantine area mm-hmm. and uh, your Arabian Peninsula as well. Okay. So, and then I'll get into the uh, the Anbali school. So we're going from the, small, uh, the largest to the smallest school of jurisprudence. Uh, amongst Sunnis. So they derive their Sharia primarily from the Quran, uh, hadiths, and the words or beliefs of Muhammad's followers after he had died. Uh, peace, peace be upon Muhammad. Uh, and so the words and beliefs of his followers are called the Sabaha. Um, and so essentially that's it's kind of it's, it's more moderate, but at the same time it's still rooted historically in just their beliefs, so you're not necessarily allowed your own interpretation of it. Okay. So you rely primarily on more so the historical interpretations. Uh, it is considered to be the strictest and most traditional school of jurisprudence in Sunni Islam. So let me guess where it dominates. Saudi Arabia? Uh, yes. Uh, Saudi Arabia. It's in Aceh. It's, yep. Where was so, it? Aceh? It's Aceh. Certain, certain pockets of okay. Saudi Arabia. Okay. Um, and then trying to think where else it dominates. I mean, we're talking about the smallest school, so, so it maybe it really dominate like, anywhere. It's more so pockets. Is that, so is that school specifically <laughs> related to the Wahhabi? Uh, yes, it is. That's, okay. what that's what I thought. Hanbali, Hanbali is where Wahhabism is drawn yeah. from, okay. correct. Uh, that's, that's why I wanted to clarify that, because I was like, wait, that sounds, yeah. that sounds exactly yep. like that. So Wahhabism is drawn from Hanbali. Okay. Uh, very, very I'll quickly run through these last two. So we have Maliki, which is uh, predominantly all of Af- you know all of your Muslim African countries, mm-hmm. and so that's relatively equal in size to the Shafi school of jurisprudence. So they're you know tied for number two in terms of size, and they rely on the Quran and the Hadiths as uh, the primary source of Sharia, but they also consider the consciousness of the people of Medina. So specifically, historically, people who live, and presently, who live in Medina, uh, if there's a question they have regarding something that's not in the Quran or the Hadith, they will consult the people of Medina, the the ulema, the uh, religious council. Mm -hmm. So the last one is Shafi for Sunnis, and that... So Shafi is actually an offshoot of Maliki, Mm -hmm. uh, and they rely on both reasoning and tradition. So uh, the Rai, the human reasoning, and then the traditions found in the Hadiths. Uh, they also abide by the Quran, and they first rely on the consensus of Islamic scholars, the entire community, the Ijim. Then on the analogical reasoning, which is you know your you know my thoughts or you know anyone in this room's thoughts on when you read the scripture, what do you think it means? Um, and in matters, basically in matters in the Quran and the Hadiths are silent again. Okay. So. Well, and before we go into the body or, or the Shia branches, I just want to ask Beverly and, and Zach, you guys are both, have experience with Sunni Muslims. Have you guys had any experience with these different schools of jurisprudence or anything to 
you could enlighten us with? So, yeah, so I went to an Islamic private school in Indonesia for a year, um, and that was uh, very eye-opening, taken for granted. I went in knowing no Indonesian, um, and everything was taught in <laughs> Indonesian. Um, so uh, it was a steep learning curve in terms of that, uh, but you saw um, very, very uh, different schools of thought be taught um, within <laughs> Sorry, Samaj is chowing down on some pizza right now. It's crazy. Who the hell bit this pizza? <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, um, you saw very different schools of thought being taught. Wrong, See, again. You're good. I'm sorry. Group, continue, continue. We're listening. Just talk over just, us. Just yeah. Yeah. The viewers are listening. We're not that important. The viewers like you more than us. That's right. That's yeah, you're right. That's why I said age before beauty. Yeah. Beauty here. Mold. <laughs> Um, so, so I got that experience, especially mm -hmm. listening to a lot of the scholars um, speak. Uh, but then I also had the opportunity to go to Aceh, um, which is following under that really, really strict uh, school, of, uh, very strict Sharia law. Um, you see, you know, no absolute. Everyone had to have their hair covered. Um, very strict. It's a small island um, in Indonesia, for those of you who don't know, and it is considered for the most part separate from Indonesia. They, the Indonesian government um, gives them their own right to rule basically this island. Um, and watching my host family, who, who are Sunni, be in that island was very humbling. Um, their interactions were very different than what I was used to. They were very guarded in what they were saying. They were very guarded in their actions. Uh, versus when we were in Jakarta, they, they weren't scared to speak their minds and talk about their different ideas of religion and Islam and how that pays into culture. Uh, versus in Aceh, it was very much we are sticking to the Quran and what's in the Quran and we're not expressing our viewpoints for the fear of like retribution for having a different thought process of what was uh, practiced on that land. Interesting. That's a good question. So like for Indonesia, mm -hmm. um, with their geographic positioning mm -hmm. where they were literally the center of like the exchange of Hindu thoughts, mm -hmm. um, Muslim thoughts, some case Christianity um, through trade routes, etc. Uh, if I remember correctly, they have their own, this is like a, they're, I guess like a dominant, uh, I don't know if it's a religious belief where essentially it blends concepts from Islam with some aspects of Hinduism and Christianity and I guess in some cases Buddhism. Mm -hmm. um, is I guess Indonesia as an overall Muslim country, are they much more strict in their interpretations of let's say the Hadith? Um, as well as the Quran, or are they much more open to individual interpretations of the Quran and the Hadith? Because um, as you just talked about, um, the one particular island where mm -hmm. they don't, you know. So um, Indonesia is really interesting in terms of, you know, it's composed, composed of over 17,000 different islands, mm -hmm. 15,000 if it's high tide. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that later. <laughs> um, but each island you can travel to and kind of have a different uh, religion that you've found is predominant there. So Bali, for the most part, um, is Hindu. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll see a lot of different practice there versus you go to Java, the main island in Indonesia, and that is predominantly um, Indonesian. Um, and, or is it predominantly Muslim? Good Lord. <laughs> Looking at that, it's Indonesian. The wine. Like, it's um, <laughs> I'm a lightweight. It's okay. <laughs> 
predominantly Muslim. Mm -hmm. um, and for the most part, because of the history of Indonesia, and you saw what happened like, with communism mm -hmm. specifically, um, and we can get into that in a different podcast. In a different podcast. <laughs> Um, but they're a lot more open to the uh, interpretations of the Hadith, mm -hmm. and those who really do follow that really strict Sharia law mm -hmm. go to Aceh um, and can be found there. So for the most part, they're very open, um, mm -hmm. and it provides a really interesting conversation uh, to talk because they're very open to disagreeing with each other. Uh, but then you come back to this idea that we're all Muslim, um, and so we'll talk about you know what's going on. We, I, my host family and I talked a lot about what's going on with ISIS at the time, um, and their ideas. And that they were very open to discuss about the different how Islam played a role in that, and their ideas of like um, ISIS versus the train of thought that individuals in ISIS would have. So. Yeah, Beverly, your your experiences and then John's kind of explanation of, of Shafi, it, it kind of sounds like they are really combining reason and revelation mm -hmm. very well, much better than the other schools of jurisprudence, but Zed, what is your experience with these different schools? So personally, I think it really depends on the culture. Samaj so had really well in the head, and the reason why I'm bringing that back up is because when you look at North Africa, it's not the same as the Middle East, and obviously, you know, part of that's geography, right? But the, the other part of what I'm getting at is the culture is very, for a Muslim nation, Europeanized or liberal. And I mean liberal in the sense that they are a lot more open to things. So, like, if you go to Morocco, Tunisia, especially Tunisia, um, the women have a lot more rights than most places that you hear about, you know, whether it's Saudi Arabia. I mean, Saudi Arabia has been opening up, to be fair, but but I would say that's kind of the big differences where a lot of the things that I've ran into, it just depended on what region I was in. Like in, you know, I didn't see it too much in Jordan, so I don't want to judge and don't want to talk too much about Jordan. Oh, but, John can talk about Jordan. But like, <laughs> but like, you know, for example, the Saudi couple that I flew from Indonesia back to the United States with, you know, great couple. I really wish I still had contact with them. They were cool people. But, of course, the it's, it's kind of interesting because in the Quran, it does ask for, you know, modesty and women to cover up, right? But it never really speaks about women not being able to speak to men. But the Saudis and their culture, mm -hmm. yep. it is not appropriate for me to address a Saudi woman mm -hmm. if I don't know her husband or, you know, her husband didn't get permission, right? And so, like, that experience right there is kind of like a good example. But when you're in Morocco, it's normal to mm -hmm. shake hands with a woman and meet them and introduce yourselves. And, like, they're very, yeah, so I, I would say mine's kind of less specific to the schools, more mm -hmm. specific to, like, I guess, culture. culture. That's, that's my so, experience. So, yeah, you would say that, like, oh, for some countries, a lot of some of the Islamic traditions may be mixed with cultures of the specific Yeah, country. right. Yeah, you can definitely see it uh, with the culture mix. Uh, and it's really interesting because, and sorry, I'll pass it off to one of you, but no. one of the things I've noticed, like, for example, here in the United States, uh, you know, growing up, you've always heard a lot of things about, you know, Sharia law, a, lot, a ton of misinformation about it as well, but then you hear a lot of rumors, for example, about, like, honor killings. Honor killings isn't common in North Africa or even the Middle East, but where it happens the most from what I've seen is more Iraq mm -hmm. and more very strict people like the Wahhabi uh, because they are very strict about their beliefs. Uh, I hate to 
be so general, but it is just like they're very fundamental. Mm-hmm. You know, they go back to what did the Hadith say? What did Muhammad say? That's it. You know, there is no if, ands, or buts. That's what it is. So, uh, just to add on to that, um, I remember being in Indonesia and uh, I went to go. In Indonesia, you do this thing where you take an elder's. I'll do it to you. I'll take you take an elder's right hand and you touch it to your forehead, and that's how you like show respect. And I went to go do this um, to one of my host family's uncle, and the host family like quickly stopped me and said, "You can't talk to him and you can't touch him because he was someone who very much was like, I don't, I don't believe." You know, I shouldn't touch a woman unless I know the husband and follow those rules. But you saw this blend where my host family, you know, my host dad was okay with me shaking his hand and talking to him and doing all that versus someone close in his family was not. Um, and so you, that's a really great example of seeing where Indonesia had that blend of ideas and cultures. Yeah, right. Just I'm going to build right <laughs> off that. Uh, just like a general rule of thumb uh, when traveling in an Islamic country. If, as at least if you're a male, don't approach or begin conversation with a woman unless she approaches you and asks you a question or talks to you, because then it's somewhat okay. But if not, you don't know her husband. You don't, and it looks very bad in the eyes of other religious followers, uh, the authorities. Like they'll give you trouble over it. So. Just don't do it. <laughs> I mean, also, we're talking about this quite, this notion of um, cultural interpretations of Islam. I mean, uh, we can look at Iran, for example. Um, before the Iranian Revolution, where Iran was, a, you know, Islamic country, very liberal under its Zoroastrian mm-hmm. um, structure. Um, but the Shah knew... Uh, the importance of Islam uh, when it came to uh, domestic stability but you know it wasn't as far as like women having to dress in their um, what was it burqas um, or they were, the hijab. their hijabs um, they didn't have to they had this liberal interpretation of it but it wasn't until that revolution um, Ayatollah Khomeini um, who was in Paris when it happened, so he wasn't even in the country. <laughs> like he, <laughs> he wasn't. He was in Paris giving his uh, his speeches, and then when he found out, like, yeah, the Shah left. Um, when the Shah left, that's when he was brought into Iran. But how Iran, if someone wants to explain how Iran, because this is very important, how they became Shia, um, where originally when Iran was Zoroastrian, Iraq, Shia. Um, but if somebody, Zach or Jack-Jack, uh, or Jack-Jack if you want to, uh, we talk about uh, briefly on how Iran became the dominant Shia power. I am going to let Zach take that as in terms of how they turned from Zoroastrian to Shia, but I will describe... Uh, the branch, the, the branch, branch and the subsect in which they are. He has the branches right. now. Yes. Yes. Right. That's so Zach, you could talk. The history about the, of Iran for me is a little, little right. foggy at this point. So, so Zach, um, you could talk about the history of it, and then yeah. once we start to get into the nitty gritty of not just yeah, Shia I, but also their branch, the Twelvers, um, and then the Alawites in Syria, that we can continue that. But Zach, okay, take it away. So if you kind of going backwards again to the historical part after. 
that you know, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, died. You know, after I read that part where the Khairi Qum uh, sermon came out, essentially, that was kind of where the sect started, right? Is because, you know, when uh, a part of the majority, or sorry, part of the Muslim community, not majority, uh, believed that Ali was the successor, right? So that's kind of where it started, but you got to remember they were all a part of the same caliphate. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of, I guess, to get to the Iran part, sorry to be so, you know, into the details, right? But to get there, it starts with the next three successors before Ali comes in, because that's where the spread of Islam went from Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. Iraq, Jordan, modern-day, I'm going to name modern-day countries, Jordan, Palestine, Israel, you know, where, you know, this entire, set, or, sorry, I almost said Sahel, <laughs> the Levant, Levant yeah. and uh, this. Jeez, I just like blanked out. Right, yeah, the Arab Gulf. Well, Levant, the Arabian Peninsula. I was about to say Saudi Arabia and then the Arab Gulf. Of Levant, <laughs> I was about to say something weird. Wait, um, were you drinking some of the wine earlier? No. Yeah. <laughs> You've been, I've been um, drinking. But, uh, you know, that's kind of where it started is because, like, once that first, technically, Prophet Muhammad was the first, you know, caliphate, right? But after him, I'll say the first, meaning um, it came down to, let's see, Abu Bakr. He was only there for two years. And who was Abu Bakr, just out of curiosity? Okay, so going backwards, I guess, just explain that, because I'm going to name a bunch of people. So yes. I'll, I'll name them now and what they were. So Abu Bakr was the really close companion to the Prophet Muhammad. And uh, so his... So it gets a little confusing, because you're going to get into a family tree, right? So the Prophet <laughs> Muhammad was born... And then when you start looking at the Prophet Muhammad, right? So his, his father died, I believe... Uh, I have it here in my notes somewhere, but he believed he died, I think, bef- two years before Prophet Muhammad was born. Don't quote me on exactly on the years, but it was a couple years before he was born. And so his mother raised him until he was about six. He died, or she died as well, so then he went to his uncle. That's where his uncle Abu Talib comes in. Talib is the father of Ali, which the Shia believe is the successor. Going over to your question specifically about uh, Abu Bakr, he was a really close friend with Prophet Muhammad around the time that they started Islam. and But no direct familiar relation. Yeah, so there was no familiar relation until uh, the Prophet Muhammad's wife, uh, Khadijah, died. When she died, then the Prophet Muhammad married Aisha. Now, that's actually, Aisha, the marriage is probably one of the controversial things here in the United States. Mm-hmm. She was yes. very young. Yes. Very young girl. How young are we talking she was born in the year 610 A.D. 610 A.D. was around the time that the Prophet Muhammad started Islam and having the revelations from God. And he died in the 630s. So that'll tell you, like, he married her when she was probably, some say 8 years old, some say 9, but somewhere between... 8 to 12? Uh, yeah, like 8 to 15. I'll do a broad range and say 8 to 15. And then, of course, you know, he was <laughs> in like 630 A.D. So Abu Bakr, was family like, friend, yeah, exactly. married, family married friend. into Muhammad's family, and then Ali is Ali's co- uh, uh, Muhammad's cousin? His cousin and yeah, his son-in-law. Son-in-law. Because son-in-law. His, so this is why I said it gets confusing, right? Because the Prophet Muhammad had a daughter, Fatima. Fatima married Ali. That's how he became his son-in-law as well as cousin from his you know, uncle. And so, you know, that's what Abu Bakr was to him, was a great companion, close friend, to where Ali was his cousin's son-in-law. And when the Prophet died, that's when Abu Bakr was... So a bunch of the followers had met together and decided, 
that basically it didn't really matter about bloodline. They cared more about the succession mm-hmm. line in general. So they chose Abu Bakr for as the new. Yeah. So they put him in power for two years, and then he dies, and then um, was it uh, Caliphate Umar. Yeah. Then yeah, I was gonna say then the next one coming in was, was Abu Bakr assassinated. No, I think no. he died of old age. No, no, no. But Uthman was assassinated by the Khawarij. Yeah, I was going to get into that. So let's see. Muhammad, Abu Bakr, yeah, Umar. Uh, Umar comes later. Because Ali, Ali and Abu Bakr are the two that kind of set the, the I guess, the... the, the, the I guess, sorry about that. Like I'm just like trying to think. It kind of set the, the well, pace to split Islam. Right. Well, right. But so I'm just saying, it's, it's, those, it goes the first... Turn. Right. Three but caliphs, I believe. The direct line of succession from Muhammad. Abu Bakr, uh, Caliph Umar, Caliph Uthman, and then you had Caliph Ali. Yeah, then you had Ali. And then after Ali, for Sunnis, you had Caliph Hassan ibn Ali, yeah. and then Caliph Muayyah, the first of the Muayyad dynasty. Yeah. But after Ali is where you see the Shia break, yeah. and they start their 12 Imams. Yep. And Ali is the first Imam of twelve. So exactly. the Shia follow Ali and believe his line of succession is legitimate, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Because he's a direct bloodline. Like right. Muhammad, Muhammad yeah. peace be upon him. And, and the Shia, this is where the Shia, I guess, has another difference, and this will help explain it. Is the Shia also believe that um, for community guidance, that you have to be in direct relation to the Prophet Muhammad to be an Imam, for example. So like they allow the Imams to. I guess dictate community rules, but to the extent of that their bloodline somewhere down the line has to be from either Ali or Prophet Muhammad because Sunni doesn't really believe that it has to be blood. Just you know they believe that you know we're Muslims. You can go study. You can become a sheikh. You can become an imam. You right. But the Shia, in a general sense, I'm sure there's somebody out there who will say that they don't. But in a general sense, that's what they believed in, right? And that's where it goes to that Iran. Thing um, and and you kind of mentioned it with the Muads, right? Uh, and that's that's so I know I kind of gave all the extra. No, it was it was good backstory. To yeah. it. I highly recommend pulling up an image if you're listening to this and looking at it. Yeah. Those of you who aren't <laughs> able to audibly do it and like visually can see it because you can start to see that split. Really the family happen. tree. The, fam- the family tree. The family tree, tree shows you the split. The, yeah. You can see the split and how it works. You can out. look up a uh, Islamic history family tree and, and an image will pop up showing the split. But John, uh, I think you can go a little bit more in detail as to what. Uh, the different branches are right. Shia believe, yeah. So I'll, I'll so some of the defining differences between uh, Shia and Sunni. Uh, for one, as we kind of already covered, Shia believe that the leadership of the Ummah or the Muslim world uh, should stay in the bloodline of the Prophet Muhammad. Yeah. Uh, he they believe in the twelve Imams of the Ummah, starting with Ali, mm-hmm. and so they disregard the last two caliphs. So technically in well, Sunni, you had four and then an extra two that were widely agreed upon mm-hmm. by the whole Sunni uh, Sunni faith. And so they disregard those last two and consider Ali to be their first of 12 imams, with the 12th imam being the Mahdi. Uh, and I'll get to that. So they believe that the, they only really abide by the hadiths and sunnahs that are written by someone who is of blood relation to the prophet. Um, also, instead of having 
I'm gonna blank on the name of one Mecca and Mecca and Medina. I didn't There's another one, in, another one in Iraq. So there? yes, yes. So Shia yeah. believe oh, that uh, Kufa and Karbala are also holy sites. Yes. Which the Sunnis consider to be haram because you should only have. Is that a cause of a lot of tension between Shia yeah, and Sunni? There's a. I can get into that, but <laughs> yeah, I'm just curious. Like, where where did all this bad blood come from? That's the big thing. Like, the original f- split, and then also uh, Shia, they build temples and uh, venerate saints. Yeah. Which. Ah, bravo. And to have saints is to almost be like, and this is getting to a question we'll talk about later. You're having oh, a whole god. Is exactly you have deities Worship aside from God, which you should not mm-hmm. exactly. So. And I, I was going to add on to that because you just asked a direct question. So other than, you know, just the basic, you know, split between the family line, right? It actually goes to warfare. And mm-hmm. that's where you see the Iranian mm-hmm. or the Shia Sunni split happen, actually. Because after the Prophet Muhammad died, Abu Bakr died, then came in Umar. Well, you got to remember, uh, what's it called? Ali also had his own sons. He had multiple, but the two main important ones were Hassan and Hussein. So whenever the Sunni caliphs took power, his sons did not agree. They were like, no, Ali was the successor, obviously, because, you know, they're Shia, and to them, he was After the bloodline. Right? Yeah. Yes. And so when Ali came in, and Ali was, uh, I apologize, I believe he was assassinated, but don't. Um, maybe he died of old age because it looked so. Let's see. But Ali, his sons were left, sure. correct? Yeah, his sons were left. So he was. He, he was in rule in all about all his praying. Six, yeah. Yep. Sixty-one yeah. A.D. And then Kawarish. Whenever the next leader came in after Ali, that was where you could say the actual, I guess, catalyst event. Because when Ali took his power, they had a problem with the Mawawi. Mawia, sorry, because the Mawia had been in self-governance for a long time, and they were essentially, militarily speaking, they were more powerful. They were a military state. So whenever <laughs> it came time for Ali to step in, they were already pretty uh, upset because... Uh, they were anti-Ali. Well, no, they were upset because actually, the, the was it Uthman or Omar? It was one of the ones that Uthman. got assassinated. Uthman. And when he got assassinated, the governor of Mawawiya, is his cousin. Cousin, yeah. See, this is where it gets really confusing because everybody's cousins and family somewhere. So, like, because he was Welcome cousins, to the he, felt like, he felt like Ali didn't do enough to capture and kill the assassins mm-hmm. to make up for well, killing the former caliphate. It's also important because I think we were talking about this and it's the way that he was assassinated too, yeah. right? He was, very praying disrespectful. Yeah. he was praying in a, t- in a mosque. Yeah. Okay. So it wasn't just he was assassinated, it was the way that it was done that really brought about that grievance um, that caused people to really say you failed in the task of finding and hunting down and killing these so, yeah. So just to bring our trip through time up to speed, so Ali is liquidated, right? Yeah. The two sex go to war. That's a nice way to say it. <laughs> sort of. They, they didn't go to war yet. It was it was almost there because that's when they felt like Ali didn't but, do enough. It kind of bled into his son, really, when the war really kicked off. But when these two branches of the Islam, Shia and Sunni, they get kicked off and they start fighting, yeah. I assume it's in or around Mecca and Medina. How did Ali's followers end up in Iran? That's what I want to know. Okay, so actually, they were in Iran. Yeah, I was going to say, they actually were in Karbala and Kufa. That was actually the capital of this caliphate. Even though Medina and Mecca were the, like considered the holier cities, they so, had moved the capital. 
and that's where they kind of got into this. Right. And so with that split between the Moia and that led to a warfare. And, you know, so from these, lives. so from these temples or holy sites in Iraq, the Shia were able to expand into exactly. Iraq. Okay, exactly, and. and yeah, I'll let, John, I'll let John take it. I'm trying to keep us from going into it's a, a really deep discussion. <laughs> <this whole thing. laughs> no, I, I, now, now we have an understanding right. of the Shia are, right. the Sunni are, and now you can right. understand. Now you can bring us up to speed with the. I just wanted to make sure we didn't go yeah, further. No, it's okay. It's not a hard thing to. Islamic history is. Is that you dive down into those rabbit holes every time you bring up a new topic? Exactly. Because right. there's no way you can understand that topic without understanding the complicated. And so then your rabbit hole keeps. Being discovered. Because I have to explain who this person is. <laughs> person. Oh, by the way, this person's related to them and we, they got to We a have war. established how <laughs> Shia Islam arrived in Iran. Yeah. And now I will go in. I have two more big differences between Shia and Sunni. Uh, really, just one, actually. So, both Sunni and Shia believe in the concept of the Mahdi. So, that is kind of for Catholics out there that, like, or Christians that how Jesus died and will come back to earth, uh, you know, to judge the living and the dead, yada, yada. Exact same thing, except for Shia, they believe that the Mahdi is already present on earth, but is in oculation. He disappeared down a Didn't well. He, he fell into a well. He fell into a well and disappeared, and no one has seen him since. And then he will only reveal himself at the end of time, our world, or during a global t catastrophe. Hmm. Um, that's an interesting conversation, but that's for yeah. another podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, whereas, whereas the Sunnis believe that the Mahdi will just return to Earth similarly with like Jesus, that he's not actually alive and in hiding. But before we go further, Chai, I just gotta say, you and Beverly have like these faces, like you have Beverly something, like, and you, know you wanna well, let it just, go. So it's interesting about that because one of the things, and I'm, I'm gonna drop a word here, and people are gonna forget about COVID, was that many people thought it was the end of time. Did, and yeah. so people were ready for this massive revelation to happen because they saw it as an end of time. So that's why I made that face I, there. I need to see where Here's, it's here's another one. Down. Here's another one for you. <laughs> Brian's like, I'm done. Yeah, Brian's so confused. <laughs> <laughs> For my people in the intelligence community, some people think uh, that high-ranking officials in Iran's government would like to use nuclear weapons to facilitate the coming of the Mahdi. Mm -hmm. I see. Yes. Okay. End of world destruction. Which would cause a giant arms race in the Middle East, and it would be, a, but again, that makes topic sense. for another podcast. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, that So, as for the, the Jafari school, which is your 12 or Shia, your, your Iranians, uh, a few other countries, but predominantly Iran, um, 12 or Shia makes up 85% of all the Shia community. And so they consider both esoteric and exoteric meanings of the Quran. So both literal and kind of the not, ultimate, the hidden meaning. That yes, let's say not mystical, yeah. but yeah, the, yes. right. Yes. Um, and again, they believe that the imamate ended after the twelfth Imam, who went into oculation. He's the Mahdi. He'll return. But they don't believe in the abolition nor the alteration of Sharia law. So what is said in the Quran is how they should live. Um, and you see that with a lot of Iran's state-funded terror, these organizations that have very, very strict interpretation of Sharia law. And it's 
that's really because they don't believe in altering it nor abolishing it. Um, as for the Khawarish branch of Islam, which really doesn't exist anymore, uh, as the Khawarish at least, it's now just the Abadi, essentially. Shout out to Oman. Shout out to and this, Oman. And this is the third, third <laughs> And this is the third branch, yes. So the Khawarish broke away from the other sects during the first uh, Islamic civil war, essentially, which was after the assassination of Caliph Uthman, and when Ali's throne was contested by Caliph Muayya. Yeah. And uh, essentially they believe Abu Bakr and Umar to be the ideal caliphs, or the Imam al-Zuhur, the Imams of glory. And so the Abadi want to return Islam, the countries in which they govern, to that glory of the, you know, no, Imams two and three, or no, one and one and three. My apologies. Yes. Um, but you've described Oman and the bodies as Switzerland and the Swiss. And yes, they are the Switzerland of the Middle can East. Can you expound on that a little bit? Why they're oh. considered to be that bridge? Wait, wait, wait. I think before he does that, we have to go back to the original question of Iran. Because we haven't hit that point yet. Okay. How they got there? How, well, we got how they got there, but we didn't how they talk took about... How they took over the Yes, we haven't hit that point. And that's sure. So, like, we should hit that point. That I forgot. Yeah, we can just hit that It's like impossible to know. So, so Beverly or Zach, you guys want to hit that real quick, five minutes tops, then we can go back to bodies. Yeah. I could say in a short way, so when the caliphs took over, a lot of people think that they just did this mass like the hammer fist, right? And just was like, you're going to convert. That's not actually true. A lot of the Muslims, there's a, there's a thing in the Quran, I'm not going to go into it, but there's an actual verse in there that believes basically your religion's your religion, my religion's one. I'm going to mm -hmm. simplify it to that for sake of time, right? But essentially, they didn't force mass conversions. So it just was one of those things that slowly over time, because of the presence and different leadership, because obviously not every caliph was as nice about it. Some of them did crack down, but most didn't. Over time, most people just slowly started converting. It was almost, I wouldn't say it was the same way as how like Christianity spread from, you know, the Middle East throughout the Roman Empire. It didn't just go with the Roman Empire, but you could say there's a lot of similarities in the fact that each caliph, there was more people converting, if that makes sense. So it was like, it was almost like the people just saw it, and I'm sure there's a ton of events that had happened, and, you know, to kind of push like, you know, I guess more influence, but from what I've seen is it just seems like it's just over time, people dealt with more Muslims, the Muslim community continued to grow, and because of those conversations, because of the interactions all the time, because there's a, and I'll keep this last point and I'll pass it to you. There was a, an account that somebody was talking about yesterday. I think it actually came from Khan Academy, so shout out to them for this. Uh, actually was listening to. Khan. <laughs> but, but, you know, he was talking about how when he went down this rabbit hole, right, the, the big things that he noticed that actually got most people to convert were the actual peaceful merchants who were just traveling to and from, which is why it spread to Indonesia, India, Pakistan, Iran, because, you know, this is the age of, you know, traveling and, you know, there's obviously no internet, there's no fast yeah, way to get there, so you talk to people, right? Yeah. And so talking, you know, trading with people who are non-Muslims, and just in general learning about these people, right? And that's that's what I've heard, obviously I wasn't alive then, so <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Yeah, and we can talk about the positive and negative incentives that the Islamic regimes mm -hmm. offer yeah. non-Muslims to convert. Um, Beverly, do you have something else? I was just going to say also something that I think I'll bring to light here is the incentive that... Islam had for women. Um, I think right now Islam might have not have the best of, uh, 
reputation for women, but women were allowed to have divorces in Islam, which was yeah. not something in Christianity. Uh, you're allowed to own property. Um, you have the decision, you know, you have a lot of rights mm-hmm. that were guaranteed to women that were not in other faiths. And so that was very appealing to women, um, although they didn't have a lot of That's a great point. information, like a lot of say in society then. It's still something that was very motivating. I want to talk about all this stuff too. We're going to talk about it under Sharia law later on. Okay. Um, before we get back to the body, Samaj, you had something? Yeah, no, I was going to uh, kind of uh, combine what both Bowman and Zach just stated, where, yeah, there were, especially with it, when it came to Iran and Iraq and expanding um, Shia, there were moments of, um, you know, like forced conversions and stuff like that, obviously. Okay. I mean, once they moved the capital to Baghdad, um, to, once they moved the caliphate, overall caliphate's capital to Baghdad from Damascus, I believe, um, there were you know notions of forced conversions, especially against Zoroastrianism. But for the most part, it was through intellectual discussions and exchanges, mm-hmm. trade routes, um, allowing basically something similar to like a tiff. It was like oh, a tiff. It was like okay, well you pay five or ten percent um, tax you can believe whatever you want to believe um, and then from there uh, yeah say it Jack Jack it's a cop no, no that's charity that's the, that's the, the word is Vimy oh he means for um, Vimy so like yes. the, not the pillars of Islam yeah, not non-Muslims right you can, and we, you can live in society but you have benefits if you were Muslim and we right. and we can bang out that in, in yeah. the section on Sharia law I right. wanted I wanted to get John's uh, yeah. final branch the body's really fleshed out before we go into Sharia. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> he's, like, he's, he's just been in his own Brian, Brian is. So, so, so Brian's Brian, in Argentina. Brian Rivas <laughs> is. I'm sorry, this is not my area of expertise. <laughs> now, every area of the entire world, I will never be able to say anything about the Middle East. I'll never be able to say anything about Islam. That's just one area. You should travel there sometime. It's like me below Texas. Like, I just. Okay. Abadis, Abadis, Abadis. Okay. So the Abadi school is the only, you know, subsect of the Khawarij branch remaining, which was established after the siege of Mecca in 683 AD. And they wanted to remain neutral between these warring parties. Is that correct, or is that? Yes. Okay. They actually originally took the side of Ali in contesting the Mawai uh, contention of his throne, but then they soon realized they're like, you know what? We don't actually need you guys. Who's going to shut up? And that's in their, how they run things. So in order to be an imam or a caliph in Ibadi Islam, you don't need to be from the Prophet Muhammad or no relation. All you need is to be the most pious and educated man in a village or area controlled, you know, under Ibadi influence. In religious jurisprudence, and if the people essentially elect you to become the caliph, then you're the caliph. And they have four different caliphs based on yep. if you need a military caliph, or if the country's weak and under attack, they'll elect whoever just to lead them out of it temporarily. Mm-hmm. I won't get into all that; it's not incredibly important. Yeah. Um, what? But what is? Uh, we can if you want. But what's really important, I think is that the third caliph of the Abadi Islamic caliphate was Abdullah ibn Wahib al-Rasibi. And this is where you get Wahhabism from. Mm-hmm. So I believe it is his grandson, actually it would be a little bit later than that, but eventually his great, I think his great-grandson went on 
and befriend, got kicked out of his village and befriended um, Muhammad ibn al-Saud, yep. who would become the first king of Saudi Arabia after uniting all the tribal people, yep. and was heavily influenced by what would later become Wahhabism. Yep. I was going to say, in Saudi Arabia just now broke their ties with the Wahhabis. That was under MBS. Right. Anyway, so Muhammad, Muhammad bin, bin Solomon just broke the ties with Wahhabis. That was a huge problem because the Wahhabis were not happy. Yeah. This has been going on for hundreds of years right. between their families. And, yeah. and so just to reiterate the point, um, you know, essentially Ibadi Islam is only the predominant uh, subsect or branch in one country, and that is Oman. Uh, for those of you who don't know about Oman, Oman is an extremely moderate country, which you wouldn't think, considering that Wahhabism stemmed from Ibadi. But there's a Jewish population in Oman, there are, I mean, Hindus, Buddhists, Christians, mm-hmm. you they, name it, and you're allowed, there's churches there. Mm-hmm. I haven't been, personally, I'll be there this summer, so you know, maybe <laughs> maybe when I get back we can do another, I'll do a little roundup on my trip, but, but that extremely from, moderate. That comes from their ideas, and it goes back to Abu Bakr and, and um, Uthman. Uh, especially Abu Bakr and early on Islam with the bodies that conversion should only be through intellectual discussion. Mm-hmm. It should not be through forced conversion because at that point you're not actually a believer. Yeah, you you became a believer out of threat. Yeah, right. So for Ibadis, we're not going to force Islam on you. It's for you through intellectual discussion to embrace it. Um, but then on top of that, the reason why I said in when you said the four tiers of um, their versions of a, a caliph is that if you look at Sultan, the former Sultan Qaboos, Qaboos. Um, Zayi, yeah. um, God rest his soul, um, he was Sultan since 1970. He was the second longest reigning leader after Queen Elizabeth II. Um, but he embodied essentially those four qualities. Uh, when we're talking about... Um, Warfare when it came to like Sunni and Shia is interesting because in, in Ibadi um, Islam they believe purely in the sense of defensive jihad. So I'm not going to attack you unless you deliberately attack me. Right. They don't believe in the modern interpretation. That's and that's what makes them makes them completely unique <laughs> yeah. and stable. But then even on top of that, when it comes to the caliphs or even the sultans' obligation to their people. Interesting enough, Ibadis do believe that the people have a right to essentially overthrow their leader mm-hmm. and implement a new one um, that essentially would uphold that social contract and their obligations. We sound like John Locke over here. Okay, I see. They got it from Ibadis. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually going to say, you'd be surprised it came out before them uh, because the democracy topic came up when the split between Sunni Shia because a lot of people were like, hold on. No, we didn't agree to elect this person. Right. And That's when so the they were like, we were told we were going to have right. a democratically elected leader of the caliphate. And from that's the Uma, a, yeah. yeah. And before we get to Sharia law, um, and then that'll be the last topic before we get into the Torah. Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting to note because um, when we're talking about democracy, um, as well as the um, who would be essentially who would succeed the Prophet Muhammad. It's interesting because 
I think additional a lot what stems a lot of the problems today is that the Prophet Muhammad did not leave behind him a blueprint or a doctrine on political mm-hmm. institutions. He did not leave a blueprint or procedures on essentially the establishment of political Islam. Um, it was this establishment of a community of Muslims. This is how we are to live. Um, however, upon him dying, what a lot of the what broods of eventual conflicts is that again, as we talked about, the personalist interpretations of what the Prophet Muhammad believed the Ummah should be, and their notions of self-interest and intrigue it got into the notions of political Islam, and then now that spurred where we are now, Sunni and Shia. What type of establishment um, is correctly, quote unquote? Islamic and the notions of uh, establishing the global ummah or a Muslim community. Um, so with that, I think so, we can... Yeah, yeah we, can, we can switch to Sharia. And that's Sharia is the big thing that all these branches of Islam and all these jurisprudences are debating and fighting about. Mm-hmm. Sharia is it's the sum of all of God's rulings on human actions. And that sounds great. The problem is... None of, not much of this is precisely spelled out because God is so much separated from us. Uh, some Christians, like C.S. Lewis calls it, is like he at one time refers to humans as slugs in the eyes of God. And, and, and that, and that it, it's about as difficult as a slug to understand a human as it is for a human to understand God. So God has left it to human beings to really flesh out what he said and argue about it and debate it. And that's kind of where the Muslims present it as like, well, Sharia is Islamic law. We have the right take on this. The Prophet Muhammad gave us the purest form of God's will, and we need to make sure that our society runs by God's will. Is that a good definition? Yeah, pretty good. For a layman? Because right. yeah. oh, okay. yeah. Sharia is based off of a lot of Old Testament and when yeah. I say Old Testament, I mean not only the Bible but the Torah. So some people, all three. Some people say the Old Testament is the Bible, but technically it's the Torah. But yeah, I mean you're you're 100 on the point because the Sharia law is pretty similar to a lot of Christian you know values, whether you look at the Ten Commandments or you know so. Well, and I want go ahead. Beverly. Well, just something that in general, two things. I'll let you cover that point, but. Um, one is that we have the golden rule, right? Treat everyone the way you want to be treated. And if you look at all the main religions, they all talk about that. And they all yeah. have their own version of that. I think that's something that people really forget about. Um, and then you can add on what we were just discussing. Right, so what we were discussing <laughs> on the side here is how the Bible, the Torah, and the Quran are all very similar. But in fact, the Bible and the Torah are both a part of the Quran yeah. itself. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Word for like word. word for word, the Bible and the Torah are within the Quran. Mm-hmm. It's just written in Arabic. Yes. yes. <laughs> right. And it's just you read it from right to left, and the the binding is on the other like, opposite like side. The <laughs> names of each chapter are the same. It's just Arabic exact names. same. So like the Book of Mary is Marian. Right, and and that's and that's true. But I want to. There there were obviously differences because I was looking at a treaty that was spelled out, the Pact of Umar, the yeah. Treaty of Umar in six thirty seven A.D. And we'll get to that eventually. Um, and, and that'll demonstrate how Muslims at that time viewed Christians and, and, and Jews. But I wanted to talk about the two main uh, sources of Sharia that most Muslims turn to at all times. One, of course, is the Quran. Mm-hmm. 
like what is it the unadulterated uh, word of both uh, God and Muhammad? Is that correct? Yes, yes. yes. that's pretty good. Okay. Yeah. Pretty accurate. That's really that's, good. Yeah. And the yeah. only true way is in yeah. Arabic. Yeah. Any translated version is false. Is not correct. Yeah. yeah. So I only read commentaries of the Quran because I don't read. Arabic. Arabic. Right. That's right. Mm -hmm. So this is all from an unbeliever, right? So take it for a word of salt, everyone. But the other main source, and I would say some schools treat this as more authoritative at some points because of the abrogation principle, are the hadiths or the sayings of Muhammad. And and the most principal one that I've been able to find, at least in Sunni Islam, are the are the hadiths composed by uh, Muhammad al Bakari. Hmm. He he's the one that a lot of these Sunni yeah. turn to. I don't know if I pronounce that right even. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's good enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's good enough for Gunther. He's, yeah. he's a major... Yes. And I was wondering major if you guys... I don't know if anyone else at this table can really... I want you guys to expound on Hadith because unless you're a Jew, you will not understand the importance of that um, outside of like the Muslim faith. So, if Zach, if you want to take it away and explain the Hadith better than I can... Uh, you know, I'll, I'll say it, I guess, in a different way because you said it pretty well, but the Hadith is basically a narration mm -hmm of the Prophet Muhammad's life and how he lived. So you hear a lot of hadiths, for example, from Aisha, his second wife, uh, who narrated a lot of it. And essentially, a hadith is the stories that are told outside of the Quran. So the Quran is the word of God. The hadith is... They provide context. This is what the Prophet Muhammad did while he was alive, right? That's that's kind of oh. the, the quickest way to explain so, it. There, there's more it's a biography. So, yeah. so, so like, I'm going to break it down a little bit simpler for me at least. So the Quran is doctrine, and then the Hadith is experience informing that doctrine. Exactly, like okay. how the, how Prophet Muhammad actually lived. So, and it's important about Hadiths is there's a very complicated process to have a Hadith established. You can't just say that this is something, and many have tried, that this is something that was practiced by Muhammad and you know, this is what he said. That is not true. I, they can. I'm sure you two can explain it better than I. But um, it is a very complicated and long succession process to get a hadith established, which is yeah. why they're so important. Because it's not just one person saying this is what happened. It has to be. I think it's like four generations have to confirm it. Yeah, you have it. to confirm it. Like all this evidence to mm -hmm. prove like this happened. And there, there's a word for it. And don't quote me on this word. I think I'm going to say the wrong one, but. I think it's called hidda, and hidda is if I remember the right word, hidda is basically me. Like I'll use an example, me telling you guys, well, this is what Islam is, and I'm over here making things up. That's hidda. That's me just saying, well, this is what I believe because I believe it. You know, there's no belief behind it. To whereas a hadith is, look, people have been proving this for a long time. And and here's another thing I've I found. I've just been reading through the my commentary on the Quran. Yeah. I've been making notes, and I found it very interesting. And I, w I would say more of the Quran is devoted to addressing non-believers than believers. That's what the, I mean, I've found a lot of these, these texts. I mean, it's, it's, there is stuff in there that governs um, relations with Muslims between Muslims, obviously. But the Quran and the Hadiths I've read, they, they more address outsiders. Muslim to non-Muslim yes. relations. And that, and that to me, is very, that to me is very political. You, you're two groups of people are coming together trying to figure out, well, how do we act justly towards each other? And, and that to me, that to me, these Hadiths in, in the Quran, it's, it's more political in a way than, than the Bible, if, if you look at it in that way. You know, you might actually be true. I don't know how to quantify that, but that possibly is true because when you look at, so I'll bring up the controversial topic as, as an example, right? The word jihad, everybody thinks that means war. 
Struggle, well, right? yeah, the actual term struggle. just means to struggle against. So, for example, uh, I, I listen to a lot of the Sunni imams out of the Gulf of Arabia. Like, my, my favorite one that I listen to is Hebel uh, Nabi's Sheikh. So, I apologize. I, call him, <laughs> I shouldn't call him an imam now, but, you know, Faris Hamadi. He, uh, he had a really interesting thing based off the Hadith and the Quran to where it, for, this is just a really minor example just to kind of show um, what you're talking about, right, is he essentially established that in the word jihad, it could mean somebody who is, and I know this is probably going to be offensive to some people, so this is my warning, but if, if you are a gay man or a lesbian woman, your jihad is by acting against those sexual feelings and sexual orientation, because in Islam, it's not considered uh, halal or you know okay or acceptable to be gay or lesbian. But if you are acting in the jihad or the struggle against that, you are technically a Muslim, and you are still, you know, uh, I guess, what would be the word for it? Adhering to the guidelines. Yes. Because right. you you are doing what you're supposed to do, right? That's to your point. So there's kind of like three stages or levels of jihad. So you have the jihad within oneself, yep. mm-hmm. the jihad against others, mm-hmm. and then you have the highest of all, which is the jihad, you know, for religious reasons. Yeah. So yes. so the highest interpretation of jihad quite literally translates to basically to struggle in the name of God. Yeah. And, and just to answer your question really quickly, I mean, when it talks about quantifying, like, I would say it might it might actually do that because you got to think in context of the times. For example, when Christianity came, and the Romans, this, I'll keep this really short because this is another historical context. When Christianity came and the Romans originally rejected Christianity, they and the Jews crucified Christ. Well, after that, the Romans crushed the Jewish rebellions and renamed the area Syria Palestina, and out of spite for the Jews. So. I look at it in the context, now this is my belief, this may not be true, I'm just going to throw that out there, but I look at it in the context of, if you look at the past and how they saw how Christianity, Judaism, kind of had these constant conflicts, they went out of their way to try to dispel the, the I guess, I don't want to call it a myth, but they wanted to dispel the fact that you felt the need to attack somebody because they believed something else, you know? I think that's where it came from. Well, well this is another thing. We, we talked about jihad. We've given more comprehensive definition that yeah. a lot of laymen go into. I want to talk about another word, um, uh, kafir. That word I'm not as familiar with, so I don't want to... No? John might know. But I wanted to give you... Because I keep coming across this word in Bukhari's uh, hadiths. Uh, it's used... Kafir is used to identify non-Muslims, but it means a little bit more than that. Right. It means concealer. It means... You're, you're concealing the truth of Islam, which has been revealed with Muhammad's prophecy and his, yes. his so, teachings. And that, and that's a, that to me is a little bit dangerous. Muhammad's come. We know he's here. He's given the truth, the purest form of God's will. We all know that he's done this. Right. And if you're a Christian or a Jew or a Hindu or anyone else, or an atheist even, God, God forbid, you're ignoring this. Yeah. That makes you a concealer. That makes you a kafir. And I just wanted to, to know what what does Sharia say about these types of people? Well, so yes, a kafir is essentially it's it's a non-believer, um, a non-believer of Islam. And kind of this is gonna kind of be a roundabout way of answering your question, but I hope it'll give a better sure. idea of how they think. Yeah. 
and more about the Islamic religion itself. So they all think that, you know, every Muslim acknowledges Abraham, Isaac, Jesus as prophets. In the Islamic religion, there's been, I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's somewhere around 40 prophets throughout history. Mm -hmm. But the difference between Islam and Judaism and Christianity is a word called Tawid, which means the oneness of God. So for Muslims, God and Muhammad, the prophet, are not, they're not even somewhat similar. The Prophet Muhammad was strictly human. Yes, he was, he was a if, if you want to think of anything, he was more of an oracle, okay? Whereas God essentially used him to speak yeah. to the people. But whereas Christians tend to think of Jesus as almost the earthly version of God or the true son of God, yeah, that, that's not, that does not happen in Islam. And so that's why they call us, uh, you know, they use the word takfir, uh, non-believers, because we believe we don't believe in the true oneness of God. Christianity, you have the Holy Spirit, you know, Father and Son, so you have the Holy Trinity, and it's just it's not it's not the same, and that is why we just we don't believe quite simply in the oneness of God, and so they consider us to be non-believers of their viewpoint, I suppose with regards to God. But to go back to that, like, yes, there's this idea, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, it, it, you can still believe what you want to believe. And that was one of the really great things about Islam is that although you are a non-believer, that is still your right to not believe. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but in, I used to think that too. And then this treat of Umar came across my desk one day. And I read it. And it basically, this treaty outlines how Muslims and Christians should interact um, in, in Mesopotamia, in, in, in Iraq now. And it's, I'm just going to say, it's very <clears throat> anti-Christian. I'm just going to say that right now. Christians are forbid, forbidden from fixing their own temples or their churches. They can't build anymore. They have to bow every time they see a Muslim pass them. Um, they cannot carry arms. They cannot defend themselves. They cannot testify in court. Yeah. That to me shows that a lot of Muslims at this time, they really truly believe that, that Christians, when they looked at Islam and they rejected it, they were acting either out of, they couldn't act out of ignorance anymore. They could only act out of contempt. And they, and they, and they had to be persecuted. And I'm just curious how much of this has come up into the present day from 637 AD. You know, I'll give a quick note on that. I think it's a fair viewpoint because that's, that's kind of the downfall of perspectives, right? Is like they took it as like you are blatantly rejecting the new word of God that came directly from God. Word, yes. Yeah, according to this is Islam, right? They're like, look, God already gave us another book. He gave us the rest of this to finish it. And you're rejecting it. So I can definitely see how there's a ton of tension between the believers and different faiths. And that's where I think the Hadith and the Quran and what Muhammad's last sermon comes into play the most is because he blatantly said it, and I kind of briefly said it before the podcast, I think, but he said it himself before, uh, so let's see. So this is, this quote, I'll give you two quotes, because this kind of gets into an interesting topic, and, uh, but 
in his farewell sermon, he also said, indeed, there is, this is English translation, so there's going to be some words interchanged out. But indeed, there is no superiority of an Arab over a non-Arab, nor a non-Arab over an Arab, nor a white or a black, uh, except by piety towards God. And then there's another one of, in Quran 2, 256, there shall be no compulsion, acceptance of, in the religion. And then in Quran 109.6, unto you your religion and unto me my religion. Basically meaning like, look, if you believe something else, I'm supposed to let you live in peace. But of course, people aren't, sadly that, you know, they don't really follow that. And I think that's where the big disconnect happened is yes. you, get, you get the leaders who interpret it as, for example, like what the, the terrorists nowadays do. They like to interpret jihad and then killing the non-believers and all those little tidbits that they like to... I'll just say it. They like to cherry pick right. little pieces out and be like, "Well, this is justified because jihad says I can struggle against the non." They, 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 they almost they pervert the religion to yeah. No, we all no. have our no. No. Okay, but right. I know. Like, I think it's also important to note that and I'm gonna pull this one. <laughs> humanity is flawed. Yes. Um, yes. And we inherently like to work in our own interests. Yep. Yes. And a lot of times you see it throughout religions. It, an interpretation is taken to have political, you know, political impacts. And right. I think this is an example of that. You know, just reading through some of this document, there is a lot of different versions of this pact. There's no exact documentation. And it seems it's political impact of an interpretation, mm -hmm. which we see in not just Islam, we see in Christianity, we see in atheism, we see in Buddhism. It, there's so many different examples of it, but I think this is one of those. Well, they, well, I will say this. There is a real-life uh, thing that, that shows this, the cops in Egypt. Yeah. You cannot fix a Coptic church in Egypt. You can if you go through their government, their civil government, but even then you have to go through an incredible amount of bureaucracy, and if it goes through the wrong S1, you're going to have a lot of problems. Yeah. It's a rough area of Cairo. So that's what I'm saying. There, there are real-life versions of this. So that's why I give it credibility. Muslims are looking at this and they're saying, well, there's something to this that coheres with our operating pattern. Yeah. Go ahead. How, one question. How, I would say, how large was the, the caliphate at this point? 637. Well, 637, it was pretty new. So we're talking maybe part of Syria, Iraq, part of Saudi Arabia, part of what And here's why I would, I would bring that up. Um, the reason why I would bring that up is because when we look at, um, since it was relatively new, and we're looking, if we look at it from the notions of the free marketplace of ideas, and how a lot of these religions expanded through trade routes in the area, in the same way that when Christianity started, it took uh, principles from pagan regional regional pagan religions in order to get credibility and competition and so I was able to go as far as in some cases Far East Asia through the Silk Road uh, I think that a lot of times when it comes to that as we brought it up earlier in the podcast we we're talking about self-interest of said leaders and their relations to wanting to seek legitimacy and contain these other established religions that are in the area um, as well as seeking the overall expansion of the Islamic, essentially the Islamic empire at that time. I mean, yeah. uh, look at just from the Rashidun Caliphate, how massive yeah. the Caliphate became 
like they had to unfortunately in some cases revoke the the liberties of these uh, already established religious communities that weren't yeah. Muslim uh, would they realize and kind of understood would be a, a pain in the neck to try to subdue so that's what but yeah got that treaty but also eventually it came to okay we'll pay this tax yeah and you, you'll be able to believe what you want to believe not yeah, to say that parts of that did yeah. not remain obviously you brought up Coptic Christians in Egypt but the notions of eventually we look at the, the the proliferation and expansion of the Islamic Renaissance period which was around the time of the European Dark Ages you would see especially in northern Africa those types of principles weren't the case yeah. sciences flourished religious exchanges flourished uh, institutions Flourished. Yeah. Um, look at the Moors going into Iberia, um, the Iberian Peninsula, ruled for like eight hundred years. Things of that notions where there were senses of freedom of religion, but also in some strategic areas, there was also suppression yeah. of religion. So, I'm so happy you made that point because it feeds right into what I want to say, and that is just how powerful some of these Islamic caliphates were, uh, especially during you know kind of their golden era. But ultimately, why you see that some of these countries... I mean, we're talking about... Oh, so that's a, why you was doing this? Yeah. We're talking about a religion and, you know, civilization that came up with basically modern-day medicine, math, science. Yeah. Yeah, and it's still used like, today. Like, the all the numbers. All that I take physics, but, too, and I blame them. Yeah. <laughs> but, but what's crazy is that what ended kind of their renaissance era was ultimately such a strict adherence to their faith. In the yeah. damn because, because you had... <laughs> so, right, well, okay, that point aside, you had, you had beautiful, you know, astrolabs built to, to mm-hmm. you know, the discover space. And you want to know why they ended up destroying it? Is because instead of looking at at it through an you know an astronomy lens, they viewed it as astrology. Yeah. And so it was to false them, gods. it was false gods, false and gods. they destroyed they most it. of what they had built. And yeah. yeah, I was gonna say so like I'll go even further back and to your point on what you're talking about. Uh, by this the way, is the last word now, so you gotta wrap it up. Yeah. So I'll, I'll wrap this up and with this. And <laughs> if you guys ever have a podcast about Roman history, trust me, I love Roman history. So I'm gonna bring this up again. If you look at you know how you talked about the treaty and how they suppress certain religions strategically uh you know when you're dealing with like for example judaism in the middle east in this period of time they continually rebelled against the romans and every single time the romans would crack down harsher so i think there was also that aspect too of just looking at it as like okay look you know depending on which leader because there were certain ones that were pretty liberal they didn't care as long as you paid the tax in North Africa right but so I think there was that issue of the personal interest but then also just looking strategically like how are we going to maintain control of said territory because if we don't we will lose our caliphate and our empire and obviously you know when it comes to national interest or empire interest or you know whatever you know term you want to use for it right I think that's where it also came into play because they were like okay we have to be realistic or we're going to lose control and power so I think power dynamics, personal interests, you know, obviously the difference of religion too, and then humanity. 
you know, us not being able to follow our own religions, you know, mm-hmm. like, let's be real, like, nobody follows religion to the T, right. even though they claim to be even the most conservative Wahhabi is going to sin, no matter what he says, he's going to, you know, like, and same with, you know, ISIS. And well, so all if you're a radical organization, they're doing the exact they opposite, preach but then this, they preach it, you know, they one go out and drink and do I think drugs. I'll end it there, but I think that's how I would look at it, is it's just looking at the context of history and how humans are. You know, right. just the reality, like, we can't even follow simple orders, you know, like, adults. Like, I jaywalk with me. Yeah, I was going to say, like, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're a li- you're habitual line stepper. <laughs> so, I, I look at it that way, but I get your point, and I have, I have to say it's a fair point to look at, because there are people who definitely believe what you're talking about is, like, they're like, no, if you're a non-believer, you deserve X, Y, Z, whether it's death or prison or, right. you know, expelment, you know, and... This, this is the problem. It, I mean, Islam. I mean, it's it's a massive topic in general. Yeah, like, so we're gonna come back to this. I want to say definitely. Anybody? Yeah. We talk about vlogs. We're going to definitely do. He wakes up for that one. We're about the Crusades through the eyes. We are definitely going to do an episode on the Crusades <laughs> because yeah. that in itself. What what the Christians did to the Middle East. And and yeah. we're and they're and we're themselves. Gonna, I, I want to bring. I mean, Beverly, John, the Byzantine Empire. <laughs> Zach. Sorry. I mean, you guys. You guys have done a great job. Just giving like a grounding that we can build off of in future podcasts. Oh, Absolutely. What I want to do now for the next forty minutes or so, I want to talk about the, the other big topic we're going to get to, which was littoral combat. Okay. Speaking of which, it was just announced that Congress gave one point some billion dollars to uh, keep the zoom out afloat. Oh. That project, which what? is which is the exact <laughs> which is, well, this this, yeah. in this, in this project is the exact opposite of what we need when we're talking the torals. Okay, well, and gonna open well the CNO. I know we haven't gone out come out with this, but the CNO just released his plan to basically build five hundred new ships, which. I'm jumping right in without any context, and I'm so sorry, but like I'm in the Navy, so this is very exciting for me. Um, but 500 ships, 100 amphibs, 100 submarines, but we're keeping the zoom out cost. It just doesn't, doesn't. The math ain't well, math. The math ain't math, especially when a submarine costs us $8 billion. Well, the only thing I know about the zoom out class is basically it was the. It was the U.S. government's idea of a stealth ship, like a huge stealth destroyer that was supposed to be used for coastal bombardments, and it turned out to be, honestly, just a pipe dream that now is just chipping paint away at the moment in Maine. That's the only thing I know about the zoom alts. Um, yeah. To be fair, I, I will and it to, to be fair. It does <laughs> that is weird. true. But where, where I'll be fair is a lot of people said the same thing about the F-35. I mean, like, when I was in... This is when the Thanks. F-35 started taking over all of our, uh, uh, what's it called, um, squadrons. So it was kind of interesting because I was F-18s, so all of our planes were going away, right? And so everybody had that same kind of feeling towards F-35. They're like, we're spending all this money in it doing nothing. And so like I look at it kind of like, look, the reality is it's brand new. Like right. if you don't give it time, it's not going to work. But at the same time, I understand taxpayers, you know, we got to account for our dollars, and you're just dropping billions like that. I mean, so. I think most people will still agree that the F-35s are still pretty useless. Um, we haven't really used them. But we haven't used them. They're Israel. really, really expensive oh. to produce. <laughs> some fun and like, Too much fun. <laughs> I, I, will say, I don't know, like... I, if that's a fair argument well, to make I, I will say I, I will say Samaj's point of bringing up the yeah. zoom wall. It brought us down a rabbit hole, but it's also important <laughs> in another way. The zoom wall 
is not designed, it can do this, but it is not designed to go into littorals no, and fight a battle. And But before we go any further, like, I want to get into what a littoral is. Please explain it, because I don't know. Well, that, all right. Well, I mean, it, the term littoral, originally it comes from the Latin term uh, litus or, or shore. And in geographic terms, it kind of um, refers to that coastline zone between <laughs> extreme tides and low tides. And uh, I don't know if Beverly wants to expound on that, being a Navy. You know, I think it's really important that we have inner branch or branch awareness. So if you want to continue with that or the former Marine Corps, it would be really great to show that it's not just one branch who understands it. Well, I mean, I mean, I don't know if this, uh, this is, is this definition correct? Is that area in the coast between extreme high and low tides? Would you say that's an accurate assessment extreme of what the is? Extreme tides and low tides? Yes. Yeah, I mean, sure. So basically, and that is the basic <laughs> definition, yeah. So basically, New Jersey. Build on it. Help so, me out. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, so like, looking at what the, the Marine Corps calls the littoral maneuver, I think this might help because it's a little more specific rather than the vague, right? Mm -hmm. So they call littoral maneuver the ability to transition ready to fight combat forces from the sea to the shore in order to achieve so, a position of advantage over the enemy. So basically, we're not talking about the battleship, the cruiser, we're not talking about the, the carriers, we're talking like the smaller boats that we would amphibiously deploy from, so once you get off of said boat, you're gonna be in the littoral maneuver zone, right? So, so you have different ha coastal habitats. <laughs> but you have different zones that you get closer to the beach, you get closer to the beach, and they broken, get broken up, and basically like the littoral zone is kind of that like closest part. So what it sounds like to me is just the littoral is like a ship would be for a ship to have a blue water capability as well as a green water capability. So basically operating on the open sea and then operating on the coast. That'd be my guess anyway. So like the Jersey Shore. <laughs> That's enough out of you for the night. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, so just going off your definition, Zach, the, the types of boats that would be used. Oh. Would it be something like the U.S. Navy's old uh, a Mark VI patrol boats or something of that sort? Or, or the Coast Guard's, like, uh, fast response cutters? I would say probably, I don't know. I'm looking more specific, so I apologize. Like, no, I can't answer yeah. those two questions. Yeah. When I think about it, I think about our AAVs mm -hmm. that literally take us off the boat. Okay. Take us to land. That's what I think about, but to be fair, I think you're on to something there because the, the reality of the definition of littoral is so vague. It could also be the smaller ships that we come out of as well, which would fit both of those because it's, when it talks about littoral maneuver, you could even get really specific talk about, like, for example, the Navy's SEALs and the reconnaissance of the mm -hmm. Marine Corps where they're taking the little black boats mm -hmm. and they're literally just driving in on their own. It's like, that, it's, it, that's the downfall. It's super vague, so that's why hopefully... So is there not okay, so a centralized, like, across-the-board understanding of what... Littoral means because no, of that. No, not because the military, right? So we have different, <laughs> yeah. different definitions. Right, because you have the Navy's like objective, and then our objectives aren't the same. You know, so it's like we have all these definitions. So the best way that I can kind of describe it is you have, and I'm going to go from the U.S. perspective, is you have the amphibious assault ships, and right, you have different classes. You have the LHA, which is a landing helicopter assault, um, and you have two classes of that. Uh, then you have the LHD, which is I want to be on. Uh, which is a landing <laughs> helicopter deck, uh, dock, and then you have a landing platform helicopter, which is an LPH. As you can see, they all have helicopter capabilities, which is really important. Um, but the main thing is that they're able to deploy amphibious 
units to then an objective. Yeah. And so the way that I have kind of been taught as littoral is you have these main big ships and the vehicles that come off them to complete the mission are those units that are in the littoral zone. I see. So and I was on the right track yeah. earlier. I just wasn't sure about the two because I was like, eh, I don't know about that. Cause so, so you would say like uh, air support is critical for a successful deployment in the okay. tools? So, I'm going to call somebody out because yeah. that is, so military geography, incredible class, Professor Lakari, former Marine, Lieutenant Colonel, incredible. So and a, it, I think littoral is a combination of, you guys better know this, land, air, and sea. Mm -hmm. It is crucial, Marine Corps, this is what they specialize in, it is crucial to be able to have a successful mission um, to have all of those platforms. So should you not have air support, if you don't have that land component, you're not going to be able to successfully like, have, meet your objectives. And in this, the sea portion is happening in that patrol zone. Yeah. I mean, I would have to agree. I mean, that's the reason why it's in the Marine Corps hymn on the air, land, and sea. I mean, we have to specialize in all of it because the reality is, and not that this isn't knocking anybody, so don't take this <laughs> like anyone, but it's like the Navy's job is, I mean, the reality is the Navy drives us around, right? And we're the ones who do the combat, so we're the infantry for the Navy, but there's a bunch of support elements in the Marine Corps to support said operations, because when we amphibiously land, obviously we need their ships bombing the hell out of the shores. We need our planes dropping bombs. And then we need to get our guys on the beach and take said, you know, I guess land. And that's where I would say, you know, that littoral combat comes into play, which is why a lot of those smaller Navy ships have at least helicopter capability. That way the carriers can send in the bombers out in sea, and those guys can send in the helicopters at closer range. That way when we hit the beach, we have something covering us rather than just walking into like a D-Day scenario where you're just getting... Shelled by the boats, and you're getting mowed down by machine gunners. You know, just there. You know, it, it kind of adds that extra aspect to help us achieve further inland. And so, why these definitions are really important is, you know, we're looking at a shift. Um, one from GWAT, so the Global War on Terror. Yeah. We're focusing now on Russia and China. And one of the main shifts that we're seeing in the Navy and Marine Corps is that reintegration between the two. Um, two aspects of them. Yeah. Uh, we really saw that split in the global war of terror where Marines were out in the desert, like, they didn't, they had the support of um, the Navy, but they weren't having that integrated unit. And so we're yeah. seeing, going back to Force Design um, 2030, is that we are creating this united branch that can go forward with the mission set. We see yeah. Russia, we see China doing it, we see the importance of Taiwan. And more importantly, not just we're seeing the integration of the Navy and Marine Corps, but we're also seeing retraining of troops. So yeah. the SEAL teams are going back to their roots, um, relearning how dive school is becoming. It's always been important, but really learning how to do those assaults off ships from submarines and relearning all these aspects, which are really at the root of the Navy and Marine Corps, which we forgot. So you're saying, it sounds like basically you're talking about how a lot of the branches or even part, certain services are trying to get back to their original roots instead exactly. of going towards a war on terror type of scenario. We don't, we don't exactly. want Marines to be trooping around Afghanistan. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That wasn't their, that's one of their yeah. jobs. And I was yeah. going to bring that up is, so to add on an example, a lot of people, and this gives good context for people listening, right, is what we did in the Marine Corps during the Global War of Terror was not what the Marine Corps does. You improvise, adapt, and overcame. Yeah, exactly. That's all we did, I guess, out of our motto, right? <laughs> but, like, 
But the reality is, is like when we invaded Iraq in 2003, the reconnaissance marines were used as what Germany called shock troops. That is not reconnaissance mission. Reconnaissance mission is to collect intelligence on the enemy's size, location. It's keywords to lose, size, activity, location, unit, time, equipment, right? So that was reconnaissance main job is give the commander this information. If you have to get into a firefight, be ruthless. Your job is to literally just kill the enemy, right? Mm -hmm. But in Iraq, that became a weird thing because reconnaissance trains with the SEALs. They do a lot of shipboarding. They do a lot of, like, uh, I can't remember the name of the boats that they use, so I apologize. I, Zodiac? I think so. That sounds right. the small yeah, the black boats. Yeah, those yeah. are Zodiacs. So they use the same boats and everything. They do, you know, the amphibious landings, but reconnaissance wasn't special mission capability. They weren't special operations, which... This doesn't really relate to littoral combat, so I'm not going to mention MARSOC too much, but that's why they made MARSOC. And then, but it's essentially <laughs> us going back to our roots, and it kind of like Iraq, Afghanistan, I mean, we're inland. That's the Army's job. The Army is supposed to occupy the land, but we were there occupying with the Army. You know, it's like that weird, we're not doing our things anymore. Yeah, you know, I spun through the Forest Design 2030. It's not, it's not an Army must-read, right? But, I mean, I felt like I had to for this discussion. And there was... Mentioned not just in that document, but in other ones as well as creating um, littoral combat teams, marine littoral regiments. Um, would any of you guys be able to speak more on that? Like w what those are designed to do? Um, it was just, I saw littoral and I'm like, well, okay, this must be pertinent to what we're discussing. Near as I can tell, it had something to do with creating more light infantry and, yeah. and, and allowing them to, to recon and, and patrol yeah. better. But I was going to say, so the last thing that I saw in the Marine Corps that was public knowledge was basically we're going back to our roots of amphibious assaults and part of that was is reorganizing our infantry and getting rid of our tank battalions so when we were getting rid of the tank battalions what we were doing is we were bringing in of course more drone operators but that's just because equipment's changed you know we need drone operators now but like we we're bringing in things like drone operators but we were substituting out tanks for things like uh, mid-range ballistic missiles and like uh, artillery, you know, these kind of vehicles that can, for example, I guess I should back up just one second here and explain why the Marine Corps is doing this. So they are preparing for a conflict with China in the China Sea, so we are preparing for another island hopping campaign. Obviously it's our job to do that kind of stuff anyways, but the point of where I was going with what I was saying with the equipment changes, tanks don't land good on beaches, and it's more of a pain than it's a help when you're trying to, you know, amphibiously assault a beach with a tank that gets, you know, it might get through the sand and everything, and it might operate fine, but obviously it's an easy target coming off of a boat, you know? And so, like, they're trying to make it lightweight, anything that can maneuver faster, but also, once we take said island, we can put our artillery and hit the Chinese mainland or our enemy's mainland because it might not be China, who knows. But that's the main one. Uh, that way we can still hit them from a long range and we still have you know, air superiority and fire support for the next amphibious landing. But that's what it's about is island hopping again like what we did against the Japanese. That's what the Marine Corps is trying to focus. So I yeah, guess... China's definitely our pacing threat. So no doubt about it. Um, what I was going to ask too, just... The Marine Corps has cut their tanks. Yeah. Have they also cut portions of their logistics? Because I've heard that a lot of it's been taken over by the Navy. And I'm, I wanted to see if either you can kind of 
see if that's just hearsay and that's just rumors or if that actually has something to it. You know, when I was in, that wasn't happening. But like I said, when I was in, we were just transitioning to the F-35. Okay. So that tells you that was... Yeah, like, <laughs> it was a while back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So my guess is, to be honest with you, probably. I'll say it probably because it would make sense because... You know, the Navy, we depend on them to get us places, except for the few occasions where, like, the Air Force flies us to Iraq and Afghanistan. <laughs> like, but, you know, like, that kind of stuff. Right? Okay. So I would assume, yeah. And, Wainwright, to your point, you know, what we're talking about in the Marines and the Navy more so switching towards a littoral focus, uh, we are talking about a near-peer conflict with mm-hmm. China that would involve island hopping. And so you're going to see the Navy supplying more so the, the logistical support for the Marine Corps who are on the islands. Yeah. Uh, you know, some of these islands aren't going to be big enough to fly in C-130 cargo planes or yeah, C-17s. You're dump, dump so you're going to have helicopters and Ospreys. whatnot. Ospreys taking off from Navy ships. Well, honestly, the thing I can see from this is honestly the... Well, if we're going to be doing a Highland Hopping campaign, we'd have to obviously just look at the experiences from World War II, specifically yeah. in Jap- Japan, going through Midway, going through Guadalcanal, everything, and it seems like Beverly has something she wants to say. <laughs> <That's> just- <laughs> Not just necessarily that, but also the Korea. Um, sorry, I have a, a slide deck pulled up, but um, yes, I do have it. It has some <laughs> nice slides if anybody would like to see the, the awesome. nice island hopping. Um, but we talk about... Um, I'm going to pronounce this Inchon. Oh, Inchon. Inchon, 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 Inchon yeah. Which Inchon. was really, really critical um, and one of a massive blow to Korea uh, in the Korean War just because of how damaging. It wasn't island hopping. Um, it was we snuck around and we, you know, put MacArthur pulled a <laughs> nasty uh, 180 on um, the North Korean armies. But you see this this tactic, again, of the importance, and to, to bring it towards uh, near-peer competition, um, in Africa specifically, we're seeing that a lot of the Chinese are taking deep water ports. Um, and yes, it's for economic reasons and having that control, but also, I'm getting there. <laughs> economic reasons, but also if we're to potentially fight a proxy war, which is where I think we would see a lot of our competition with China happening, and please correct me if you disagree with that. Um, be- Afterwards, for String of Pearls initiative. That okay, okay, so I think we're going to face more proxy wars than the actual war with China, quite right. frankly. I don't see an actual war with China happening in the near future. I can't predict further than that. I don't think they're naive enough to try to do it against the U.S. Yeah, they're logistics not now. Not, Fair enough. Enough. not now. So I think no. where we'll see them is we see this playing out in MENA, we see it in... Um, they're different initiatives, and so what they're doing is they're getting ports and they're getting different land-based regions along coastal regions, and that's going to be really important because if we have to fight and we're putting troops in there, that that's going to be how we get our entry into those countries. And so we need the importance of the Navy or Marine Corps mm-hmm. in having this new objective to successfully complete those missions. That makes sense because uh, I remember sometime last year where China was trying to sneakily get a naval facility in the UAE yep. um, mm-hmm. and we found out about it and informed them, informed them Abu Dhabi about the Chinese intent, basically their capabilities and uh, intentions as to why they will want one in the Gulf and then they were trying to seek a naval base in West Africa. Yeah, Equatorial Guinea. Right. Yep. 
to be right there in the South Atlantic. Um, and it's just, it's just important to note that a lot of these Chinese naval um, facilities, they're dual, they have infrastructure for dual purpose. Uh, and what I mean by dual purpose is that they have the economic and, and frameworks. Mm -hmm. However, if some sort of warfare uh, were to occur, they can switch it over to a naval logistical facility. Hence why they, especially the one in Djibouti that they have, uh, they don't call it a, a port, they call it a logistical, a maritime logistical facility. Um, so, I find it, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Well, no, I find it interesting that Equatorial Guinea and Djibouti, like the two areas where you see uh, problems in the littorals the most, right, with piracy. Mm -hmm. um, and China wants bases in both of those. And, and that's the other thing we're not talking about. We've talked about littoral combat in terms of like, you know, great state, you know, um, actors and stuff like that. But the other thing is against non-state actors. How do you patrol littorals? Um, and obviously you do with a mixture of land, air, and sea. But then you got to think, well, what kind of vessels would you even use to patrol? Does the U.S. even have that capability right now? I was actually going to say, ironically, that's the Coast Guard. But yeah, the, the fast response cutters yeah, are the, the only ones that do it. We sold the last of our Mark yeah, Sixes. Yeah. And I was going to say, the, the, Ukraine the only thing is, of course, our U.S. Coast Guard, weirdly enough, was in Afghanistan. I don't know why that made no sense to me. But the point is, usually the Coast Guard, obviously, guards our coast. That's, you know? And that's what they're, yes. So it, yes. I think, yeah, what you're talking about, if we really wanted to compete, in the littoral sense abroad, yeah, they would have to give the Marine Corps and the Navy some kind of capability to do said Coast Guard work. I, I think we kind of already do. I think that's when technology like drones kind of come in. They're pretty cheap for a lot of these countries. We think of, um, you know, they're pretty cheap. Mm -hmm. um, they have effective ranges, and we could have them within, you know, you have that 100 mile uh, nautical miles off the shore that's required. That's part of that country, right? That's that's the that's the, that's their internal waters. Yeah, yeah right. um, and they have the distance and the capabilities to do that without necessarily the manpower of being on a ship. Um, and I think then you can have a coast guard capability or something mm -hmm. to then send out when they find it. But it would be a cheaper and better option to have those along coastlines. But but you still that's a good point. But I would say that using drones specifically for both recon and then targeting. That's risky. I mean, we've seen the problems with drones. Like they can hit stuff pretty well, but are they hitting the right thing? Oh, you know that, and, and that's and that's where boarding and interdiction well, like, becomes. Well, that's right. It's just an imaging thing. It's this is what's patrolling instead of an actual ship. Yeah. And then we send a ship out to do the but then boarding. The, but then the question would be, what do we send out? Because we like if the U.S. right, we can't send out our our littoral combat ships. They're too big. It doesn't make any sense. And then there's there's not enough of them to do it um, on all that littorals, like in all the area of operation. I think if we were trying to address the problem at hand, I think AI will be a big thing. It goes hand in hand with the, the drones, but then also our, the Marine Corps has them. I don't know if the Army does, so anybody who's Army, you might be able to tell me about this. But we have what's called a QRF, <laughs> a, a quick reaction force. Around, like, excuse me. The, the quick reaction force is what we have that can deploy at any moment anywhere in the globe. So I think that might be that's our 170 one airborne for us. Okay, exactly. see, so that's good. So then we already have the capability. <laughs> I think I think that's going to be what might help us continue those kind of operations, right? Is having the QRF, but also the power of unmanned drones, AI that's going to eventually start taking over the piloting, 
because they've already started doing that for some of the some new aircraft of testing, I should say, prototype. That Beverly's on the fence about it. Yeah, so <laughs> they're 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 testing it out. AI is not at a point where I think look at Orca for any of the listeners. If you're interested in AI, look at the Orca program. It's an unmanned submarine. Really interesting, but I'm not going to cool. go into that. That's a later one. <laughs> I, just, yeah. I want to make a very quick point with regards to China's littoral naval capabilities yeah and that is that the majority of their ships in yeah. their navy are literally patrol and coastal combatant ships 209 yeah. of i think roughly 350 of them yeah to expand on that and you brought up an interesting point about well why would china want to be in would near Equatorial Guinea and um, mm-hmm. uh, Djibouti, especially with the high rate of piracy. Well, I mean, then again, as you just the number that you just brought up as far as their littoral ships, but it also gives them a reason to stay there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if I saw a fact from um, December 2020 to August 2021, um, this this particular organization. Um, I'm blanking on the name right now, but they had sent uh, field researchers to document small arms in Somalia in particular. 80% of those illicit weapons were manufactured in China and Russia, and 95% were assault or battle rifles. Um, Looking at what China seeks to do, think about it, Djibouti is strategically located near the Bab el-Madam Strait, which which is one of the most busiest straits in the world. Um, in addition to is at the the start of those the Arabian Sea into the Indian Ocean and then Equatorial Guinea um, right there next to which country Nigeria which is a major energy producing uh, nation um, that China has significant economic interest in if you were not if I mean you would not be smart if you would not try to get a some type of maritime logistical facility where it's large enough for you to up to put literal littoral ships um, to maintain a, uh, a military presence and establish your dominance in these two strategic choke points uh, both dealing with energy resources that China needs. Mm-hmm. The other thing you need to look at is a lot of the Chinese um, reforms in its military lately have been oriented towards its naval force as well as air forces and the main reason for that is they've been trying to at least for the navy, from the navy, they've been trying to reform the navy so it could operate in multiple different theaters and multiple different operations. It's going to involve amphibious assaults, anti-piracy, trade protection, and just power protection. So I can see, at least for t- having a base in Djibouti, I feel like they would try to expand a little bit more of their presence in that area to help train their navy towards some of these missions, as well as for any other scenarios they'll have to face in the future. Uh, Beverly, oh, okay. <laughs> so I just real quick, kind of going off both your guys' points about China, and I'm also going to include Russia in here. Uh, but China specifically, they only have one overseas uh, military base, and it is their naval base in Djibouti. Yeah. Mm-hmm. However, according from their String of Pearls initiative, they have bases in or. My apologies. They have economic infrastructure, <laughs> uh, aka ports that are in deep water and can handle navy ships in Sri Lanka, Pakistan, um, let's see, where else? I believe Cambodia just signed a Cambodia. Cambodia. Uh, Hold on. Actually, actually, 
Cambodia might revoke that they because that that um, the engines for the submarines that China provided weren't working. Cambodia told them either you fix this problem or we're revoking that uh, security partnership. But you also got to look. You also got to look at. They have a economic facility in Equatorial Guinea. They're building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They have two pre-existing uh, maritime ports on either side of the Panama Canal. The yep. two biggest mm-hmm. ports. Yep. Yep. They, they own ninety percent of Brazil's largest port. Yep. The port so of the I mean, Cruz in Mexico. Yep. They have agreements in Halaib, Israel. Right. And then they own the port in Greece. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> they're they're like just yeah. my point is, my point is, think about the major strategic maritime choke points that they essentially could have control over. Yep. Panama Canal, Strait of Mallorca. Malacca. Malacca. Strait of Malacca. Uh, you have the Strait of Hormuz, Strait of Bab al Mandab. Yeah. I mean, they're setting themselves up to control. They're in the they're Mediterranean. They, 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 you're yeah. scary at owning the largest port in Brazil. Right. I don't but but then, but then you also have Russia, who has bases in Syria, and um, they're trying to establish one in Libya. Mm-hmm. So that gives them access yeah. to the Mediterranean. They, they have one in Eritrea. I think they still yeah. have one in Cuba right now. They have oh. one in Cuba. They have. Uh, they're they trying to establish 20, one somewhere else in South Africa. Twenty Wagner Group companies across uh, Africa. Yeah, I was gonna say right. if, you include, <laughs> if you include Wagner, yeah, they're. But Africa. it's all essentially for quote unquote economic expansion. But let's be real here, it's guys. If if out. a near peer conflict were to break out. You know that a military unit is getting yes. sent yeah. to every single one of those economic places all over yeah. the all over the earth. Well, so, I know which ones are getting hit first. So kind <laughs> the of strategic choke points. Bring back to littoral. Um, something that's really unique about China, which I would like to point out. Now, this isn't going to help them in really um, conflicts that are not around China, um, but is their utilization in Wainwright. Yes, gone. Nope. Wait, right? You should know about this because we talked about it in our class. I would never walk away when you're taught they're ghost fleets. <laughs> they're ghost fleets and use of the maritime oh, militia oh, and like their fishing God. fleets. Yeah, the fishing fleets. Because yeah. what? No, taking no, no, resources. Yeah, <laughs> taking resources. They're able to have these mass small ships that are effective. Um, in just utilizing these missions. Like hundreds at a time. We, do you remember this? It was someone's end of semester presentation. You listen to Maria Calderoni better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> but that brings up a point. I mean, the Philippine has constantly talked about Chinese fisher boats, fishermen boats. Um, not only rep- not only position themselves in northern Philippine islands, but also um, essentially intruding in Philippines EZs of the economic inclusive zones. Not exclusive just economic there, zones. they go. Um, they go everywhere across the South China Sea, mm-hmm. up and towards the the Gulf of Thailand. Like they are a serious threat, and it's coincidentally Iran uses the same tactics with the IRGC in the Persian Gulf. So you can only imagine if. China was able to acquire that maritime logistical facility in the UAE, um, especially after they did that $400 billion partnership with Iran. Um, What type of, how that would have changed the Persian Gulf security geopolitics uh, with now a Chinese maritime naval presence on both sides sides, Mm -hmm. compounded then by IRGC Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps 
naval uh, speedboats with anti-ship missiles and right. dual-purpose machine guns, um, where they constantly util- you know propagandize anti-aircraft carrier. Um, operations only that you can find on YouTube, by right. the way. Not to mention, <laughs> not to mention, <laughs> no, Iran has built a pipeline that circumnavigates the Strait of Hormuz, yeah. right. so that they're able to still ship out oil. Yeah. So their threats about well, closing say, the Strait has grown increasingly. I was going to say, so I'll, I'll kind of keep on your topic about China and Africa, and then go back to the uh, littoral thing because. Wainwright asked a question earlier that I actually might be able to give him an updated answer on. So, like, if you look at, you know, China and Africa, I think it's important to note the context of why China and Russia have been so successful and influenced in Africa. It's because of the failure of the French and the Mm -hmm. failure of the West. And I say the West, including the United States. And I hate to say it that way because obviously this is our country, right? But the reality is the French were their colonizers, and all they've done is just irritate every African leader. They've made it impossible for them to come up with their own currencies. Mm-hmm. They've flooded their their countries full of fake currency to basically ruin their currencies. Talk about the CFA Franc. Yeah, I was going to say the CFA <laughs> Franc's worthless. And then you look Terrible. at all the things that France has done, which if you look at it through the lens of nowadays, it wouldn't be fair to judge, right? Because back in the day, this is strategic for France. But looking at it now, in hindsight, it's kind of like anti-strategic to the West uh, morals, goals, and strategic capabilities because what they did is they ruined a perfect relationship with the continent that pushed them towards China and Russia. That's why China was so easy for China to come in. They're like, yeah, we'll loan you money. We don't care how high risk you are. We'll come in and build your infrastructure. And if it fails, we just take it. And then Russia's Wagner was like, we'll give you security. We'll help you fight terrorists, quote unquote, but (laughs) we're going to take your resources. So you're going to pay me in gold and diamonds. Right. And that, like in Mali, for example, the contract that they did, and I'm going to wrap it up with this and go back to your point, but in Mali, for example, what Wagner did was actually, it's not unique, but for a PMC to do this was, I think, unique, and maybe I'm wrong, there might have been another one, but they essentially took a contract that let the Malayan government, which just came into power again, because they've overthrown the last, I think, four governments, <laughs> so this new one came in and already signed a contract with Wagner to allow them access to, I believe it was three of the gold mines, and that way they can uh, export most of the gold in payment for Wagner doing their services because the French decided to leave, even though the Malayan government wanted them there. Even though the population didn't, the government said, please stay. We, we need you to help fight ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Tuareg militias, so on and so forth. So I think that context will help the viewer, the listeners understand why China was so easily just like, hey, like nonchalant, they could walk into Africa because Africa was sick of the French politics. They were sick of the geopolitics that the West has had because the U.S. kind of stayed out of their backyard. We kind of treated Africa like, look, that's not our backyard. We'll kind of help France. That's it. France treated it as their domain and they did everything they could to keep power and you know, and then moving on, sorry, I'll, like, I'll let you finish that and then I'll jump to that other okay. thing. What's so just interesting that you brought up the, the African sentiment, um, I had saw a graph, uh, a statistical analysis of, which um, like a, a public opinion poll, but for the kind of Africa regarding how they viewed continual foreign nations' presence on the continent, yeah. um, and that included Russia and China, 60, between 63 and 65% of Africans are sick and tired 
of foreign nations being present on the continent. Um, and that was eventually demonstrated when the Congo joined the East African community yeah. and then kicked China out of one of their largest cobalt copper mines. That's good. Um, and now starting to begin coordinating institutional regulations uh, to make sure that, I mean, the Congo is an African nation that has minimally $24 trillion worth of natural resources, um, most most untapped, uh, but for the most part, everything from coton and cobalt that we need to fuel everything that's on this table uh, predominantly comes from uh, the Congo. Yeah. Um, so for six between 63 and 65% of an entire continent to say, no, we want to start doing things on our own terms, and on top of that, a relatively young population on uh, the African continent, um, the average age is around 19 years old, to say, no, we want to be in charge of this continent. Yeah. It's not something that China likes to play the long game. This is not something that they can outweigh, as I stated. We're talking about 19 year olds who are saying no. Yeah. Um, but in a previous, one of our previous episodes, by 2100, Africa will be responsible for half of global births. So this is not a trend that six, just this year, 65% of Africa says no, and then right. next year, it's like, okay, well, we kind of changed our mind. No, this has been, since decolonization, yeah. a process that's like, one day they're going to say, no, abide by our rules, or you won't adhere to our resources. Yeah. Uh, well, you won't receive our resources. Um, but I know we were wanting to get back to you, Wayne, right? But we've been talking for two hours. No, this is fine. I'm glad um, I took this, this So um, Africa for Africans. I was, I was going to say, like, I was just going to finish that question earlier because you asked about logistics. So I was reading through the MLR, which is the uh, Marine Littoral Regiment. Mm -hmm. Their plan is, so I guess we'll start with the <laughs> definition here, I guess. The design is a naval formation, including capabilities to enable maneuver and operations in the maritime domains. Vague, right? But the objective for this MLR is to be a small force that's independent of the Navy that can operate and deploy on its own, meaning Marines deploy Marines. And that way, the Navy doesn't have to worry about sending in the large ships. They can focus where they need to, to whereas these are meant to be very small units. So mm -hmm. they even gave a really good comparison. They said, so 3rd Marines that has three infantry battalions, a combat assault company, and regimental headquarters has about 3,400 Marines and sailors, to whereas an MLR is expected to be between 1,800 to 2,000 Marines Ooh. and sailors. So it's gonna be a really small force and they put in here basically saying that they will have a combat logistics battalion, but they're looking at tactical level of logistics. So they're looking at doing, what do they say, support to the MLR by resupplying uh, expeditionary advanced base sites, managing cache sites. So basically, say we take five islands, they're going to put small tactical level supplies, just enough for the people there, and move on. And so I think that's... I think that hopefully answers that question from earlier. Yeah, well, I mean, it answers some, but the more we talk, the more questions I have about <laughs> yeah. and littoral combat. But I mean, again, like this is a good time to wrap it up. Is yeah. So, Samaj, that was a um, you great. got concluding thoughts, or I think that was a very good. The talked about Islam and littoral combat. Shit. They're, not they, they're not good at all. <laughs> um, but I will say we will definitely.
they do a part two on it. Well, many parts yeah. on Islam. We two, three, four. Yeah. Many barely scratch surface because then we also can talk literally on, make episodes on political Islam and contemporary. I mean, even down yeah. to... Beverly Stream. But even though, seriously... Down to Islam, or, you know, Iran wanting to use nukes to... Advance the mod between that about. or the, the notions of the Muslim Brotherhood under from starting under Nasser up yeah. into killing um, Anwar Sadat. Uh, Anwar Sadat until today. Fun fact: I was in Egypt for the Egyptian Revolution. Oh. So that's where we get her back on for. Yeah. So like, definitely. Torts, tanks rolling down my street, tear yeah. gas in my apartment. Fun times. Oh, it was a blast. Oh yeah, so we'll get you off. Of <laughs> We're definitely going to do that. Yeah, uh, we're definitely. We'll do some episodes um, dealing with kind of like the new reconstructing American force posturing, um, dealing with great power competition. That's definitely needed. Um, But when we're going to do Islam, I think what we should probably do is look at it. Uh, It's always beneficial to look at it from a, a, a cultural macroscopic scale, but it's the Muslim world is so so large so fast yeah. so I'm thinking that we can try to figure out breaking that break it down into notions of regions okay. but even then that's difficult yeah. because you had empires literally like the Mughals that went from Kabul well Te- I first was Pakistan because the ones that created the Mughals started in Uzbekistan and went to Kabul and went all the way down to Bangladesh or even the the Islamic Caliphate that was from Iberia all the way to Afghanistan. Right. Right, the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that's but nonetheless, uh, we're definitely gonna have a lot more content on Islam, uh, forced posturing and everything in between. So with that, we're gonna end it here. Much love. God bless. <laughs>